Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There is a place just for you. A place that embraces the promise of a warm spring night and a reminder to hurry home on a cool autumn evening. It is a place that exists above and below, where the surreal and sublime dance cheek to cheek. This is a place just for you to sit back and enjoy. Beautiful tales for the disenchanted. Our tale tonight is entitled... The Ultimate, Chapter 7. What was that boom last night? Gregory Kilsby has entered the store and ready to workshop last night's events. Robert looks on, nursing a long black that is hot enough to burn a hole in his face, intrigued by Kylie, Damien and Anissa's reactions. He sits near the kitchen on the red lounge he insisted on buying for the store because of the colour. It was not the comfiest of lounges, but it definitely looked cool. I nearly tore a hammy getting out of the bath, says the over six foot Anissa, her hair shiny black with a touch of blue, a real life Neil Adams illustration and glorious flesh. Her bright pink lipstick accentuates full lips while her delicately drawn eyebrows suggest she knows your favourite thought before you do. Her dark black jeans offset her white t-shirt, an image of Lauren Hill with the words, everything is everything, emblazoned diagonally down from left to right across the singer's amazing afro. Anissa commands a room with a naive insouciance. She is physically the opposite of her boss, Gregory, or just plain Greg as he is known to his friends, in every way possible. Greg has forever been cursed with the sort of roly-poly body that savagely rejects all manner of exercise that attempts to change its shape. His ginger hair is thinning on top, but his thick beard more than makes up for that. He wears thick black rimmed glasses, the type that got eggs thrown at you in the 80s, but was now considered de rigueur by the ink-stained baristas in the northern suburbs. His one superpower is the ability to sweat in any situation, even on the coldest day of the year. When you looked at Greg, you knew deep in your heart there was no way he could ever escape this nerd life. Nobody on the news can agree on what it was, says Greg. I saw that some people reckon it was a meteor, says Kylie. Without looking at her hands, she removes a smartphone from the counter and begins clicking on apps, looking for more news. She walks over to the gang. 
Nah, no way. They'd have footage of it somewhere, like those meteors that were recorded from people's cars in Russia, says Damien. He is also staring into his smartphone, scrolling through numerous apps, the alien light of the screen illuminating his face. Standing alongside his girlfriend, the two of them look like digital synchronised swimmers. I wish it was aliens, Anissa says. Man, I wish it was aliens too, Greg agrees. Thanks, Greg. Nice to have some support on this. Get a room, you two. Okay, Damien, we will. I'll take photos. Kylie, says Greg. Sorry, Greg, Kylie replies, elbowing Damien for his comment. He flinches without knowing why he's copping the crack to this side. Later, Kylie will explain to him that when it comes to jokes about sex, or even any references to sex, or even the slightest allusions to sex, they were to be avoided around Greg because it quite clearly made him uncomfortable. He was the boss, they were the staff, none of that stuff, thank you. But seriously, what the fuck do you think it was, Anissa says, returning the talk to a subject the group excelled at. I reckon it was space junk. There's heaps of that shit floating around up there, just waiting to rain down death on all of us. Jesus, Damien, that's a fun thought. Sorry, Greg. No, it's fine. I just get anxious about that type of stuff. This is true. In 1979, with NASA's Skylab space station about to crash somewhere in the world, Greg rode a wave of sleepless nights, imagining it all crashing down on his very home. Everyone told him he was crazy, that it wasn't going to fall anywhere near civilization. When it eventually came down in Western Australia, very close to Esperance, Greg took that as a sign his gut feelings were something to listen to and fully embraced his role as anxious ginger guy. So essentially, you didn't make jokes about sex in front of Greg out of respect for him being respectful, and you didn't make jokes about space junk hitting the earth out of respect for the fact he was still that same chubby kid laying scared shitless in bed at night. And yes, Damien received his second elbow in the ribs from Kylie in as many minutes. This time, though, he understood why he copped the latest body blow. What the fuck are you idiots talking about, Robert says as he puts down Daniel Clow's The Death Ray. He'd only read a little of Clow's work in the past and this story was doing his head in, but in a good way. The explosion last night, says Greg. Robert thinks about nodding as if he knows what they're talking about, but he knows he's sitting with a bunch of people who are way too cluey for him to deceive. He tries to get away with it anyway. Ah, right. He doesn't know what we're talking about, says Kylie. He's sitting right here, Kylie, Anissa says, pointing in Robert's direction. How did you miss the Big Bang last night, says Damien, looking like a dog who has seen its master produce its lead for a walkies, and then, when the owner puts the lead behind their back, has no idea where it's gone. I had a night last night. He was out partying at the Toff, says Kylie, still looking at her phone. Robert looks at her, noticing the slightest change in her voice when she reveals what he has been up to. Is she baiting him for some reason? Kylie notices the moment of quiet and looks up to catch Robert looking at her. What? I walked you there and now you're in the same clothes as last night, so I put two and two together and the answer is party. Robert suddenly remembers Kylie walking him to the toff after the store shut. He has no idea why he was going to the toff in the first place. Just somewhere to be, he guesses. Sometimes he looks for some drinking company before returning to his home in North Fitzroy. He has a few haunts where he knows the staff and enough of the regulars that he can usually find someone he can talk into having a drink or six. He had totally forgotten that Carly had walked with him on her way to see live music or live comedy or something live. Poetry? Nah, she wasn't that desperate for entertainment. What were they talking about? What were they? He's got it. That's right. You were talking about Damien's new comic. Kylie shoots him a glare and Robert knows he's in trouble. Not that Robert is that perceptive. Kylie just knows how to shoot the type of glare that mothers usually save for their children when they're about to discover that they're in big trouble. 
Ah, oh, man, that was meant to be a surprise, says Damien, sounding genuinely hurt. How much did you tell him? If it's any consolation, says Robert, I have issues that mean I have a bad memory. Anissa looks at Robert and shakes her head, laughing to herself. Robert looks to his oldest friend, but Greg continues to ignore everyone sitting behind the counter of the store, searching the news articles online for any news about the explosion that everyone in Melbourne, apart from Robert, heard last night. There's nothing here, really, says Greg. How bizarre. You just can't help yourself, can you? Says Damien, looking in Kylie's direction. She holds her hands out, palms up, her eyes widening with disbelief. I barely said anything, and besides, he doesn't remember the little I said anyway. Nice work, Robbie, Anissa says as she saunders her way to another part of the store. What I do, says Robert, knowing full well what he's done. When it comes to putting his foot in it, well, let's just say that this wasn't his first rodeo. His inability to keep track of their conversations often resulted in some spilled secret or a comment that is taken out of context and has devilish repercussions. Robert blamed the youth. Everyone else blamed the pot and booze. Either way, a conversation about someone's new pair of shoes could, in the space of seven sentences, end up being a deep dive on just what gloop and gleep were in the Herculoids and then pivot into a political statement on women in cartoons. Here, Anissa calls out to Robert as she walks towards him, her phone with the ice cream shaped cover held out with the news article ready to go. Robert thanks her and reads the story about people reporting a flash in the sky and the sound of an accompanying explosion. One person who reported that the sudden bang rattled the windows of her high-rise apartment. Reading further, a few people reported a flash in the sky, but it was a cloudy night in Melbourne, and for the most part it was left unseen. Some people suggested it was a meteor. One person thought it was a plane exploding. Everyone who commented under the article declared with unwavering conviction it was either aliens, terrorists, or alien terrorists, and the government were doing all they could to cover that shit up. Totally missed it, Robert says, handing the phone back to Anissa. Thanks, Annie. It was probably just a little meteor, Greg says, his suggestion sounding like a throwaway line, but everyone hearing the mild quaver in his voice. Robert knew his friend's line of thinking. If it was a little meteor, then maybe there's a big meteor out there that's going to follow through and wipe everyone out like the dinosaurs, and then we're all doomed. Doomed! Or space junk, Robert says with an upward inflection. Greg leaves the desk and walks towards the office doing a double take when he sees Robert properly for the first time that day. Oh, you look like shit, says Greg. You know, I don't cope when you get all flirty. What would your wife say? Robert puts the graphic novel to one side, stands and picks up his coffee. He takes one quick sip and is thrilled to feel it only take one layer of skin off his tongue. He follows Greg into the office, napalm coffee in hand. What would she say? Go for it. It would give her something to gossip about with her friends. How's she feeling? Greg walks over to his desk and takes out an old-fashioned Collins Vanessa Black Diary, an iPad, a bottle of water and an action figure of Batman dressed in purple, red and gold. Robert looks at the action figure with such an obviously confused face that Greg holds it up so his friend can get a better look. It's the Batman of Zurenar. He's the backup personality. Robert weighs him off. I know that Batman. I just hadn't seen the action figure. Greg places it down on his desk and rearranges his tidy desk so the new items don't clutter up his workspace. Jill's okay, says Greg. She's tired, but okay. We just have to wait for the doctor to tell us if we're, you know, in remission or... Whatever. Not in remission, I guess. Robert was always impressed by Greg's insistence that Jill's cancer was a wee situation, and in a way, Robert felt the same way. They'd all been friends in high school, and at some point, while Robert was touring the world with his band, Greg and Jill became more than friends. Overnight, they went from friends to lovers to married, but everyone agreed that this was just perfect. They fitted together like a perfect line of odd shapes in a game of Tetris. One night... 
Jill felt a lump in her breast and the next day she had it checked out with her family doctor. It was the news nobody wanted, but there were statements from the doctor suggesting they'd found it early enough that they could do something about it. Everyone who knew Jill figured she would beat this, but you just never knew with cancer. Robert was doing his best to be optimistic. Knowing Greg and his anxiety issues, it was the least he could do for his friend. Okay, good. Tell her I'll pop around soon. Sounds good, buddy. I see enough of your ugly face, but Jill would like to see more of you. From the other side of the door, Anissa's voice rings out. Greg, shipment is ready to be picked up. Do you want me to go and get it? I'll come with you. Just give me a second. Do you want me to go with Annie? Nah, I know what I'm doing. I'll be back soon. Go home and get cleaned up. You look terrible. Greg picks up his keys and leaves the office. Robert pulls out his phone and turns on the camera but reverses it so he can get a clear look at himself. He's puffy around the eyes. He's puffy around the cheeks as well. His skin is grey. His eyes are mildly red. On the plus side, there doesn't appear to be any hint of where he hit his head last night. Yet Robert looks exactly how he feels. He brings his forefinger and thumb to his closed eyes and rubs them so hard that he has a private light show that looks like Dave Bowman's final journey in Kubrick's 2001. Robert stops rubbing, opens his eyes and looks back at his image in the phone, disappointed to discover that he's still the same person as before. Chapter 8 Robert rubs his eyes and looks again at the picture of himself taken 20 years ago. He's not certain he likes the way his younger self is looking back at him. Robert wonders if young Robert, draped in the protective pseudonym of Tom Major, is judging him. What audacity! Looking up through the ages without the experience of life to weigh you down, with a single look dismissing the man he's turned into today. It isn't just Tom looking back at him, but the band as well. Dead fingers tapping. Fuck, what a name. He fought for it too. His bands just wanted to call themselves the Black Pearls, but when they discovered that there had already been a band called Black Pearl in the 70s with a drummer who had a hook for a hand no less, they reluctantly gave in to the Burroughs-inspired name. Back when he was Tom, skinny frame with tight black jeans that barely remembered to hug the hips, he bristled at suggestions from critics that he was pretentious. With the benefit of hindsight and experience, he knows exactly why he considered this a deep cut. It was because those critics were correct. Still, it was this tendency to take a literary, bad seas style swing that helped his band stand out from the 90s milieu of Aussie bands who lied about their deepest ambitions in case someone called them out for being up themselves. Everyone knew Dead Fingers Tapping were up themselves. They said so themselves. That was part of the fun until it was no longer funny. Robert stands alone in his old double-storey home in Fitzroy North, a place he bought back at the turn of the latest century. His cat Alfred lays casually on the top of the lounge, his black fur lifting and falling with each breath greying at the tips, reminding his master that his kitten is well and truly no longer young anymore. Robert puts the photo to one side on top of a tower of books that will never be finished. Why did he continue to buy books when he knew he was incapable of finding the time to read them? He could barely keep up with the weekly comic deluge, let alone take the time to read a story that didn't have illustrations. At least when you come home, drunk, stoned, whatever, you could convince yourself you read a little before you retired to bed, when all you had achieved was a dazed look at the artwork. Some faux reading helps justify another ridiculous night of wasting brain cells. He returns to the lounge, leaving just a little headspace so Alfred isn't disturbed, and opens a bottle of wine. It is that time of the night. Time to do the thing that he promised and pull out the old album to have a listen. Before he can do that though, he just needs some downtime to collect his thoughts, find the courage to listen to the young man with all the answers who waited for him etched in grooves on vinyl. Robert sits and looks about the lounge room and is overwhelmed for the first time in a long time at just how much shit he owns. 
Shelves covered in books, vinyl records stacked in indecipherable orders, action figures posed in alien yoga positions, unhung artwork casually leaning against the walls. Look, people, if you have a lot of money, you too can buy heaps of crap, just like this winner. In the corner of the room, there is a thin film of dust that suggests one mild excavation could unveil all sorts of treasures and mysteries. He looks away from the clutter of the lounge room and through the doorway where he can see the hint of dishes piled up on the kitchen bench. Robert knows that if he stood up and walked into the kitchen, he'd see crumbs and smears of previous meals that could have easily been washed away if he'd only taken the time to splash some running water over them. He could go and clean up the mess, but he knows that he'd only be doing that job as a way to procrastinate from listening to the album. You wouldn't want to clean your dishes for the wrong reasons, right? Back in the lounge room, a flat-screen TV plays a ghostly figure reflected on the screen. Robert looks closely at the fuzzy figure. I can see you, he says, and then watches the shade mimic his very next movement, picking up the red wine, taking a sip, realising he hasn't poured any wine yet, and then placing the glass back on the glass-top coffee table. Ah, the glass-top coffee table, a perfect place to leave a glass or magazine, but mainly an inspiration for people of a certain age to ask if Robert's ever heard the story about the old-school TV personality who allegedly used to have hookers come over and scat on the glass while the award-winning host watched from underneath. Robert had heard that story so many times he wanted to ditch the table, that, but that would have required some effort on his behalf. Now he just solved that issue by having as few visitors to his cave as possible. In the opposite corner, a bunch of awards and gifts sit, jammed into the corner of a bookcase. Amongst the awards sit a bunch of toys that Robert had collected over the years, toys he held in higher esteem than the once shiny accolades. Three blue, grey and gold Lego spaceships sit in perfect formation. The LL-918 fighter pilot, the LL-924 carrier ship and the pride of the fleet, the LL-928 battleship with a little white suited spaceman in a car hiding in the back. Alongside the biggest of the spaceships is a monkey with a cowboy hat, a red handkerchief around his neck and the type of chaps even the village people would look at and think that's too much. His monkey rests with one long arm around a big honeycomb teddy bear who has Happy 2011 embroidered on his left foot. In front of the toys is a Chewbacca beanie figure that had travelled all over the world with the band back in 1999, appearing in all their tour photos, an Easter egg for eagle-eyed fans of which the band had quite a few. Just to the side of the beanie toy is a tin duck on a push bike with a propeller on his head. When you wind the duck up, the propeller spins around and around and around. And when you look deep into the duck's pinned eyes, you just know he flies around the room when Robert isn't home, much to the delight of the rest of the toys. There are times Robert looks around his home and feels it is the home of a teenage boy who was given his parents' inheritance and figured this is the age he'd like to stay forever. In his quieter moments, Robert wondered what real grown-up men would think of his place. In his more defiant moments, he didn't give a fuck what any real grown-up men would think. These thoughts often bounced back and forth in his cranium, sometimes colliding and forming new thoughts, until Robert had smoked enough pot or scarfed enough wine to forget what he was thinking about in the first place. Robert pours a glass of red, smells the 2012 Penfolds Grange as if he knows the aromas his nose should be searching for, and then takes a sip. Who knows what words a true connoisseur would use to describe this wine. He'll just have to suffice with delicious as the wine evaporates before reaching the back of his throat. In truth, he would love to have someone around to discuss the bottle with, but tonight he's alone with his cat and Alfred doesn't really have the palate for it. This is very good, Robert says to Alfred, whose ears twitch but eyes fail to open. 
Thanks, I made it myself. I didn't know you make wine. Oh, sure, Robert says. You just take any member of the cure, squeeze them until they bleed, and viola, instant wine. Isn't it viola? Ah, I'm already drunk. And I always thought it had something to do with grapes. Oh, Robert, you are a fool sometimes. Robert takes another nip of wine and sinks further into his lounge. He just enjoyed this conversation with himself. He really should call someone, but who? Talking feels like such hard work, especially when it is to someone you might know. Strangers are easy. You can be whomever you want to be with a stranger, an entrepreneur, a bon vivant, a sheep wrangler, a secret agent, a superhero, a still relevant rock star. These identities are more difficult to pull off with people who actually know you. Your friends can see through your words and verbal gymnastics into the very heart of who you truly are. Yuck. It is all just too exhausting. He much preferred the flippancy of the one-and-done encounter these days. He needs to call his auntie Madge. That is the first person he should ring. Out of everyone he knew, she was the real McCoy. When his parents were killed at the tender age of 11, the victims of a drunk driver running a red light, Robert had somehow been found in the car, strapped into the back seat with nary a cut or bruise on his body. He was left the family fortune and a childless auntie who immediately returned from abroad to take on the responsibility of raising a young boy. Madge was younger than her sister. She still had the fire of youth coursing through her veins and made for a spirited guardian while Robert was growing up. In fact, it was Arnie Madge's suggestion that they check out David Bowie during the Glass Spider tour at Kuyong back in 1987 that changed everything. He'd already shown a predilection for music pick. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. ...up piano and guitar skills from a very early age. But after seeing the show that night, Robert wanted to be a rock star. He was quite dismayed many years later to read that the tour had been considered an over-egged production. For that little orphan rich boy, it was nothing but inspiration. So yes, he needed to call his Arnie Madge, who at 65 was still full of energy and quite possibly planning her next jaunt overseas. His concern was that she was so goddamn smart, a mild crack in the voice or a deflected question would reveal exactly who he was, right now, at this moment in time, and he would feel nothing but shame for being that person. Everything was so good for so long and he knew the pride she felt for his younger years, how he had focused himself as a teenager and thrown himself into music and writing. How that in turn had spawned a successful career that had taken him right around the world and back again. 
Madge watched her nephew turn his grief into art, his isolation into rock and roll, and had gone from outcast to an individual who influenced all sorts of people from places they knew to places they'd never heard of. Unfortunately, this last decade had been a slow stumble into disappointment, into something hollow. Robert loved his art, but knew he couldn't trick her into thinking everything was okay, and that the unspoken truth between them, that Madge wasn't stupid and knew exactly what was going on, had pushed them as far apart as they'd ever been. Sure, they could talk pop culture, politics, and general gossip, but he couldn't remember the last time they'd spoken about anything personal, and that was all on him. He thought of all this through, and then decided tonight was not the night for a call. He would call his auntie soon, but not just right now. Besides, It was just another reason to distract himself from listening to the fucking album. He just needed to get up, find the album, put it on, sit back down and have a listen. Why couldn't he do this simple job? He felt like his home was suffocating him and the absence of company alone was restricting his ability to stand up. Who else could he call? No, don't call anyone. Just play the album. Time for some sweet tunes, Alfred, says Robert. Once again, his cat fails to stir a mild twitch of one ear registering that he may have heard his name. Any requests, my furry compadre? Robert stands slowly, tosses ever so slightly, and then makes his way to the album collection, squeezed next to the vintage record player. He begins flicking through the covers, skipping past Springsteen's Nevada, Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishmen, and the Beatles' Wide Album. He lingers on the Arctic Monkeys and Nina Simone, fails to make a commitment, remembers he's looking for his album, and then moves on. He then finds the album he wants to listen to, which is, surprise, surprise, not his own. Okay, Alfred, you're going to be happy with this choice, Robert says, pulling the record out of its cover. He lifts the lid off the player, gently places the record down on the turntable and lifts the stylus. He watches the black circle begin to spin. He watches it turn and turn and turn for so long, Robert isn't certain if he's been standing there for a few seconds or a thousand years. He lets it drop perfectly on the line of the outer edge, the crackle and hiss in the speakers suggesting the album is coming to life. In honour of Christie's cat says Robert. As Ziggy sings about pushing through the market square, Robert returns to the lounge and sits with enough weight that Alfred wakes for a moment to meow a statement of complaint before settling back down to sleep. Robert pats Alfred's head, who immediately begins to purr. Yeah, I know, Alfred, I should have put on our album, says Robert, picking up his glass of red. But you know, fuck that shit. Now his home is draped in shadows, the day having given up the battle long ago and transformed into the night. It is raining again. It just won't stop raining. Those grey skies draining the joy out of the most optimistic of souls, let alone the already damned. Robert sighs as the eternal Ziggy tells us the world is really dying, accompanied by Woody's drums, Trevor's bass, Mix Everything, a perfect song to start an album, remind you everything is transient, everything decays, everything dies. Fucking hell, write some poetry, dickhead, Robert whispers to himself. He knows he should listen to their album. He knows his former bandmates are waiting on him, but when he hears the songs, they just fail to live up to their history. Lizard jeans with that weird rhyming couplet they could never quite get right live. The hypnotist and my princess wife that had the great film clip but drew criticism for ripping off Ice House when they were in fact ripping off Roxy Music. And even every time the rain appears, well, there was nothing wrong with that song, nothing wrong at all, except the melody. Robert laughs to himself. Not the melody. No, the problem was melody. Dear sweet melody. How could he ever hear that song again and not think of his long-gone friend? 
Robert notices his glass must have a leak, so he fills it up again just to be certain. He doesn't want to think of Melody. He doesn't want to wallow in his mortal and thoughts. He should change tact. Think about the man. Think about Nico. Yeah, how's Nico going after his divorce? And Cliffy was always useless with money. He should think of Cliffy and how one easily made decision could really help him out. And the twins, who from all reports had rejected the weird-ass church they joined. What was it called again? It was the religion based on the works of Onan Gupta. What's that guy's name? Robert couldn't remember, but importantly, he knew the twins were back in the country, somehow. We all make our mistakes, says Robert, downing half of his latest glass of wine. Am I being an arsehole, Alfie? Is he being an arsehole? Robert didn't think so. He didn't think of himself as the punishing type. Maybe he was reading all of this wrong. He did know that he had an adverse reaction to nostalgia, an emotion the rest of the band was more than happy to embrace. Robert knew it was a trap. It imprisons you in the past and impedes you from looking forward. Then again, Robert was definitely not looking forward. Tom Major may have been looking to the future in that photo, but Robert was already here and it was a barren landscape. Maybe everything would change if he would write some new music. Can he still write new music? Once upon a time, he used to dream of music, hear it constantly bouncing around in his head, write choruses and strange verses, waiting to be born from his head into the world. Then everything fell apart. His friend died, their short-lived fame engulfed them in flames, and just like that leper messiah before him, Robert in his guise of Tom Major had to break up the band. Now his dreams are full of colour and movement, but there is no soundtrack to his world anymore. Robert figured he should be grateful. He'd written one song that was considered a classic. Most people don't even have that luck. A song so universally loved that he could never escape the long shadow it cast. Forever the yardstick for for what was to come next. Robert wanders into the kitchen and sings along to Starman, replacing the chorus with the lyrics to Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and smiles to himself. It is a breath of fresh air to feel some levity for a moment. Robert knows he should decide one way or the other about the gigs, the album. He knows he can really help some people out, people he once considered friends, brothers. He knows that all he needs to do is listen to the album, really listen to it again. If he listens to it, then maybe he'll remember what he loved in the first place, remember what he loved about creating music, remember what it was like to stand in front of thousands of people who adore you for the songs you sing. Then Robert finds a new bottle of wine, and as his night fades to black, he immediately forgets whatever it was that he was thinking about. Chapter 9 Robert hits the shower, completely unaware of his latest dream, but the effects of a restless night linger in the bones and muscles. He feels like he's been in a physical altercation and wonders what has been playing out deep in his subconscious, leaving him exhausted again. His shower takes longer than necessary as he leans his forehead against the cool tiles and lets the warm water run over his back like a cape fluttering in the wind. He leaves the shower, dries himself with the creakiest of effort, and wanders to the kitchen naked and alone. Absent-mindedly turning on the radio is a mistake as the vapid music that is popular on the commercial stations makes him want to take his own life. He decides he will be happier with talkback radio, yet the ABC brings him topics that only frustrate him. People still banging on about same-sex marriage being a sin frustrates the fuck out of Robert. Robert is an advocate for same-sex marriage. He has one particular friend who has been married to three different women, and he has watched his friend tell those three different women at the altar that they're the love of his life. How many loves of your life do you get? Is it like a video game where you just start again at the beginning and work your way through the maze until you get it right? 
From there, it's more discussion about the American president and his murky relationship with his Russian counterpart. Next, it's a story about the long waiting periods at the Australian airports after an alleged terrorist threat was thwarted on the weekend. There is a moment of respite with talk of a solar eclipse occurring in just a few days and how you can view it without damaging your eyes. Then it's straight to climate change and scientists declaring we have left it too late to fix the crisis. Another shooting in another country, more wars without end, an economy that gives the tummy the same feeling as bouncing up and down on a trampoline. A report about a woman being attacked in an alley in Melbourne has a slightly uplifting turn of events when the woman's attacker was stopped by a stranger who made certain the girl was fine and then left the scene before the police could arrive. Then a tribute to a footy player who really helped change the game that Robert knew for a fact was a total arsehole to his teammates, family and friends. At least he knew how to kick a pigskin through some sticks from an impossible angle. I guess that makes it okay. By the time they're on to a story about a stunt going wrong on a reality TV show, Robert does what he should have done from the beginning and turns off the radio and presses play on his record player. David Bowie's Speed of Life begins. Low was the last album that he had listened to last night. It was so appropriate it bordered on being on the nose. The world ended the day David Bowie died, a friend once told him over a thin white duke. As far as coked up declarations go, it didn't seem that far-fetched. On the counter stand, four bottles of red, their upright carcasses, a reminder of a night he doesn't remember. In hindsight, Robert is slightly bothered that he doesn't feel as bad as he should this morning. Alfred eventually comes in from a morning frolic and demands to be fed and then hurled. There is a possibility his best friend, his confidant, his little furry pal has the onset of dementia. Alfred likes to be held to know that his owner is close by. Every night that Robert stays out late, he returns home with a sense of guilt that he wasn't there to spend time with his friend. He carries Alfred up to his bedroom and is dismayed to find that he has ripped his bed sheets right down the middle like a split in a giant's pants. What the fuck happened last night? Whatever it meant and whoever he encountered, Robert hoped he won his dream fight. Placing Alfred gently on the carpet, he removes the sheets and throws them into the corner of the room. Alfred walks over, stomps out a little spot and tucks his paws under him, falling asleep. Looking back at the bed, Robert figures he'll deal with the rest of the bed issue tonight. By the time a new career and a new town has played, Robert has dressed, finished his first coffee for the day and is ready to go. He dresses in the Melbourne uniform of black and grey. He leaves some extra food for Alfred and leaves the house, slamming into the cold morning air. His breath billows before him like a comic book speech bubble. He slips in his earphones with the intention of listening to Spiritus Sancti. But as he flicks through his library, he remembers that he doesn't have it available. Oh, well, he would rather listen to George Harrison's All Things Must Pass anyway. He walks through Edinburgh Gardens, barely noticing the bike riders whizzing by and the people dressed in active wear who are way too motivated to be working out in this weather. Robert walks to Brunswick Street and proceeds to make his way past the old homes of Fitzroy that stand defiantly against the architecture of new buildings desperately attempting to find a foothold in his suburb. He hates these new buildings. Robert does love the street art though and every time he finds one of his favourite pieces ruined with some indecipherable tag by some dickhead who thinks he's important, he despairs that people can't just appreciate something that has nothing to do with them. It is the curse of all humankind to piss on every object that come across just so they can feel like they're the centre of the universe. By the time he hits Nicholson Street, Robert feels like he's sweating too much under his clothes, even though his skin tingles with the cold. When winter hits Melbourne, it takes all the colour away for months at a time. By the time August rolls around, everyone is on edge, talking about their lives with differing levels of anxiety. When that first blue sky hits Melbourne, usually in August, sometimes in September, you can feel the relief in the air. 
Robert always thought that the final episode of Game of Thrones should just be the remaining characters sitting out the front of their favourite cafe, enjoying some decent coffee and talking about their holiday plans. He walks parallel with the tram stop just in time for one of the newer sleek trams to pull up, decides in that instant to fuck off the walk and ride into the store. He jumps on, fumbles for his pass with numb fingers and taps on. It's late enough in the morning that there are empty seats available and Robert takes one near the window, losing himself in the slowly passing view. His thoughts drift in and out of focus as the tram lurches from one stop to the next, a perfect physical representation of his thought process with the band. He knows this opportunity is technically a good one, a situation where they can make some real money in an industry that has all but collapsed in on itself. It used to be all about the music, man. It was to begin with, but like a cliched success story, you reach a level of fame, you make a stack of money, and money changes everything. Dead Fingers Tapping gave Roberts some of the most amazing experiences of his life. Of course, money wasn't an issue in this scenario. He already had financial freedom to live his life in comfort. He's a lucky guy. All it took was being orphaned at a young age to unlock this level of freedom. It was something they barely talked about, and with their success was a no-go zone with the journalists. Good luck to the plucky reporter who broke this pact and had to deal with the velveted fists of Christy Caddo. If he says yes to the reunion, he could give all the fee to his fellow band members, guys he once considered friends. Unfortunately, the weight of their past history brings on a sense of claustrophobia. Stop overthinking it. Just say yes, do the tour, catch up with the old gang and make everyone a stack of coin. Wouldn't it be nice to once again stand in front of people singing songs that once haunted the music charts all over the world? He'd be a liar if he said no. Then that low-level panic kicks in again. There was so much bullshit in the last few years. Everyone grew up, but not in the same way. No, they didn't grow up. They grew older. They all made mistakes. All of them. They collectively shunned wisdom and instead held on to the dumb comments made in the moment. Robert also knew he put his trust in too many people around him, listened to their advice when he should have been trusting his gut instincts. He'd written the majority of the songs over the first few albums, but with success comes a need for recognition. He did the right thing, became a team player, and in the process they lost their edge, from Triple J to Triple M and three easy listening singles. When the opportunity arose to break up the band, Robert did so, with the blessing that they could continue the band without him. Of course, with Robert gone, not one of them wanted to step up and take over. It was interesting dealing with everyone clamouring to lead, and when one of them could, they found the spotlight and responsibility to be too much. Thank you very much, you've been a wonderful audience. Good night! Inspiration to leave came from the fear of losing his musical edge. Now alone, he could embark on the craziest ideas without having to explain himself. Robert could write the songs that lay hidden deep in his heart and mind. What he didn't take into account was how scared he was alone. With each passing day, he slipped further behind his imagined timeline for success. Eventually, he convinced himself he couldn't remember how to write a song. He couldn't remember where the process began and once started and how it progressed from there. All his life he'd heard music in the strangest of places, in the hum of a large city, in the wind on a quiet farm, in the words spoken by a stranger. Now it was all gone, not a single beat or remnant of a tune. It was all gone. And that was a depressing realisation. Music kept him company when he was alone. Music saved his soul after his parents' death. Music gave his life meaning. Now the thought of listening to songs from the past was confronting. It was a painful reminder of what he had lost. It wasn't until they hit the edge of the city that Robert's reverie is punctured and he finally notices the person sitting next to him. Notice isn't quite the right word. It is more that he feels the person sitting alongside. 
He strains for a good look at the girl's face, but his surreptitious efforts fail miserably. From the corner of his eye, the woman looks like someone he recognises, someone who couldn't be here, not now. Yet this woman has the same outline as her, his dear friend, his dead confidant, the sweet girl who was Mel to her friends and Melody to those she loved. This woman even appears to be wearing the same type of clothes that Melody once wore. As Harrison's behind that locked door begins to play, Robert feels his chest rise with emotion and his eyes begin to sting. He knows it can't be her. Melody has been dead for over 10 years. His friend was just a memory now. Robert needs to confirm what he already knows, that this girl is nothing like his friend. Then another thought enters his head. Maybe, if he just sits quietly, he can pretend she is Melody. They can sit together on the tram like they did so many years ago, content in her company one more time. They could play the games they used to make up together, like imaginary Scrabble, where each of them would make up a word, give it a meaning, and if they agreed it was a good word, it went down on the board. My word is mlung, Melody said. They were back at his place, in between the height of their touring. Bottles of wine opened and finished, the shelves not quite packed as tightly with books and records as they would be in the future. Snacks strewn across the dusted glass top coffee table. Okay, what does it mean? Mlung is the word that describes the specific pain you feel when you're running behind a car and you slam your shin into the tow bar. Mlung. Wow, you onomatopoeia'd the shit out of that. Full points, young lady. Robert held up his wine glass and Melody gladly tapped at a big smile across her face, a smile he did his best to remember. That was a good night, a fun night. Long gone and now a fading memory he did his best to hold on to. By the time the tram turns right down Burke Street, Robert is trapped between actions. He must look at her, needs to look at her. He's afraid to look at her. He sits still, his breathing feeling exaggerated, the sweat on his forehead bursting with the previous night. When she stands to leave the tram, his heart skips a lost beat, knowing this is his chance. With the next stop rumbling into view, the tram's bell tolls for this moment to come to an end. Robert steals a look, a glance, and that's all it takes. She looks nothing like Melody, nothing at all. Maybe they dress similarly. Perhaps this is how Melody would have dressed today if she was still alive. He is surprised at how little they have in common. Then a new sadness descends, one that draws eyes from the uncertainty of what he wanted the result to be. He doesn't know whether to thank the stranger for reminding him or reprimand her for bringing back memories he has worked so diligently to lock away. She leaves the tram and Robert returns to look out the window, watching her walk away, past the men in orange vests, digging up the road, oblivious to his inner turmoil. Unbeknownst to Robert, covered by a fog of booze and pot, this is the seventh time this month he has had an experience like this. Already he can feel his subconscious do the mental arithmetic that works out the perfect time in the day he can begin the cycle all over again to erase this memory, a burning cigarette pushing through an old photograph. His only solace being at least nothing else can happen to surprise him on this cold day. Thank you for joining us. You're always welcome here. Remember to avoid danger with strangers and never accept advice from mice. We hope to see you again here soon. Until then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.